0: Hello, my name is Niki Gay, and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. In modern times, the current economic crisis has only been beaten in severity by the Great Depression of 1929. But a recent IMF studies suggest that both events might also have some striking similarities. They were both preceded by a dramatic increase in inequality. This inequality, in turn, triggered greater and higher debt levels. What this translates into is as people got less money to pay for daily necessities, they had to take out more and more loans. Michael Kumhoff is one of the economists behind these findings. And he explains how he and his fellow researchers discovered that inequality often goes hand in hand with indebtedness. But he began by explaining how he and his team conceived of a model of a country like the US to try and explain how inequality translates into indebtedness.
1: We conceptualize the world as consisting of two separate population groups, the top 5% and the bottom 95%. And we're saying, okay, let's have an event in this economy whereby suddenly the top 5% receive a larger share of the economic pie than previously, a larger share of income in the economy. Uh, than previously. And therefore, the bottom 95% a smaller share. What is it that happens? Well, first, the bottom 95% would like to maintain their previous consumption level, especially if they think that this shock may be temporary. So this is the credit demand story, but there's also a credit supply story, which is actually even more important, which is that the top 5% now have a lot more money to play with. Okay, And then what are they going to do with that money? Well, they could obviously consume more, and they did consume more in the U.S., but there's only so many Armani suits that you can buy and wear. They could also invest more in physical capital, meaning they could build more factories and buy more machines, but there's only so much of such uh, investment that you could profitably make, especially if you know that the people who are in their majority supposed to buy the products that are produced with those factories are taking home less income to make those purchases. Then there is, and this is crucial, there is a third possibility, which is that in this game of bargaining with the majority, uh, they take the extra income and lend it back to the majority, as an interest-bearing loan. Basically what they do, they don't have to do it directly, they just put it into a financial system as a deposit that carries an interest rate, and the financial system then intermediates that and lends it on to the majority so that the money is deployed. And so then credit demand and credit supply work together in the financial market, bringing about increases in debt, and these increases in debt will be very persistent themselves. So that means every period, the majority is going to borrow a bit more, and a bit more, and a bit more, every year. And what we saw in the data, and the same then also happens in our model, is that over a period of, roughly speaking, 30 years, their debt can double. In the data, it doubled from somewhere around 65, 70%, to somewhere in the neighborhood of 140, 150%. Debt to income ratios of the bottom 95%.
0: Is this relationship between indebtedness and inequality also apparent in other developed countries? Developing countries.
1: So, when you look at other developed countries, there are a number of countries where that ratio, debt to income, uh, of the bottom 95 percent, deteriorated by almost as much, or even more, in one or two cases, than the U.S. One of those countries is Portugal, but all the other countries are Anglo-Saxon countries. So, it is the the U.K., uh, Australia, and New Zealand. They all had significant increases. Uh, in that debt to income ratio, in those same countries, the current account deficit to GDP ratio also deteriorated the most. We observe therefore that there is a big uh, deterioration in the external indebtedness of the country, so to speak, as a result of domestic income inequality. So the challenge then is to explain how that happens. In particular, what happens is this. The investors, the, the very rich in this country that experiences the deterioration in income inequality still have the three possibilities that are outlined earlier. They can still consume more, they can still build more factories and buy more machines, and they can still lend more to domestic residents. But now there is a fourth possibility, and that is that uh, foreigners can lend to the country. So the story is very much a a natural extension of the closed economy story. And it's, it's basically, when there is more income inequality, there will be more debt. In the closed economy, it was just debt between different portions of the income spectrum inside the country. In the open economy, it was, in addition, more indebtedness of the country to foreigners.
0: Why should ordinary people be worrying about this? How exactly is this going to affect their everyday lives?
1: There there are two parts. I I believe there are two parts to this question. The one part is, why should they worry about the domestic indebtedness and then the foreign indebtedness. If you allow me, I will attack your question that way. So why should they worry about the domestic indebtedness? Well, we have just had a very serious financial crisis and it was triggered by concerns about the ability of a significant portion of the population to repay their their debts, which had become very high and what we're saying in our work is that a major reason why that debt had become very high is income inequality so that's definitely something for everybody to worry about because we don't like financial crisis right Uh, when it comes to the international dimension um, here at the imf people have worried for many years now about global current account imbalances about the fact that some countries are very highly indebted to other countries. And there is always the possibility that at some point, investors in some foreign country that is in a surplus might become impatient with uh, the borrowers in a country that is in an external deficit, in which case there could be a run on some currency and um, that would trigger additional financial distress and, and c- could be actually yet another reason for a financial crisis that in this case would be triggered by nervousness abroad rather than domestic nervousness. So again, that's something we should definitely be uh, concerned about.
0: So we then finally arrive to the very tricky question. So what kind of policies to decrease inequality can governments undergo? And then what kind of policy can they actually apply to decrease indebtedness?
1: I think if you take care of the problem of inequality, that already will take care of this indebtedness automatically to some extent, because what's going to happen when you reduce the inequality and give people more income, they are then going to gradually reduce their debt over time. You know, we tax everybody in this economy, and if you wanted to use taxation to reduce income inequality, you would have to tax the top 5% a little bit more and the bottom 95% a little bit less. But this has to be done in a very intelligent fashion because you could again have unwanted uh, side effects and the cure could be worse than the disease. It's smart taxation that you want in a way that helps to redistribute income and that uh, thereby eventually allows the majority of the population to start paying down some of their debt. And so what you could do is, for example, you could have a more progressive income taxation. Then there are other things that you could do. For example, you could tax economic rents. You want to tax something that does not distort economic incentives. And in classical taxation theory, the classical example is agricultural land. Um, So what happens there is that you tax uh, the income from uh, uh, that is due to that land, uh, not the labor that is put in, not the the machines that are used uh, to uh, to work the land, they de- they deserve their reward, but part of the return goes to the owners of the land. And they do nothing. They sit there, they own the land, and they take part of the the income from this land. If you start taxing that, they can't just pack up the land and go somewhere else. The land will stay there. And so you cannot distort the incentives. And so you, you need uh, therefore to look at the goods that are in economic jargon, an inelastic supply, meaning that their supply will not be affected significantly by what you do to uh, to taxation. And you could also tax some natural resource rents and some rents in the financial sector. It's smart taxation that you want in a way that helps to redistribute income and that uh, thereby eventually allows the majority of the population to start paying down some of their debt because if they if they receive a lower tax, while the rich have to pay a bit more tax, then, then this can stabilize the debt situation.
0: And that was Michael Kumhoff from the International Monetary Fund speaking on inequality and indebtedness. And to learn more about other topics, log on to www.imf.org podcasts.